Welcome to Faith Reformed Baptist Church once again. Let's lift our hearts up to the Lord and request his assistance. Holy Father, we thank you for your grace. And Holy Spirit, now we ask that you would open my mouth and you would open our ears. May the gospel be made clear. We pray that you would open doors that cannot be shut and shut doors that cannot be opened by your grace. We ask it in the Lord's name. Amen. Amen. I want to tell you about the doctrine we want to cover today, and it can simply be stated this way. We must love Christ above all things. If we do not do this, we will become as Christians those who have satisfied ourselves with less. We will become eventually like the church at Laodicea. Spiritually, we will become wretched and pitiable and we will be spiritually poor. Well, not, not poor like you have heard about in the Sermon on the Mount where you're poor in spirit. And that's not the kind of poorness I'm talking about. I'm talking about not having any wealth toward God. We'll become blind to spiritual truth and we'll be naked in spirit. We'll not be clothed with righteousness to where we can walk boldly into the presence of God. And so the doctrine is this, we must love Christ above all. That's our doctrine for today. In reviewing from last week, we looked at the Church of Philadelphia. And if you recall, this letter is sent from the Isle of Patmos by the Apostle John, and he is making his rounds. The rounds look a little bit like the shape of a horseshoe. If you looked at the map, it would look kind of up and then down around, and we're just about at the very end. We're going to be looking at the last church today. And so last week, just before the end of the mailman's rounds, he was, uh, this mailman delivered the letter to the church in Philadelphia. And this is a unique letter in that there was no rebuke and no reproof to these people. God said in Christ, Christ said, you are just a church with a little power. And yet he loved them so much and he gave them an encouragement. Today, the Laodicean church will only receive rebukes. What a contrast. This church in Laodicea, you'll see that they are very well off, very wealthy. The church before in, in Philadelphia, they were small and they were poor. But he said, you are poor, but you are rich toward God. And here the message has been reversed. And so we want to receive the message given to Laodicea. We want to be ready and quick of heart to repent. We want to be able. We want to have that humble spirit about us. And so I'd like to read the letter to you, just that section about the Laodiceans, and then we'll get into the verse-by-verse -verse, uh, coverage. And to the angel of the church in Laodicea write, The words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation, I know your works. You're, you are uh, neither cold or hot. Would that you were either cold or hot, so because you are lukewarm and neither cold or hot, I will spit you out of my mouth. For you say, I am rich, and I have prospered, and I need nothing, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire, so that you may be rich and white, and have white garments, so that you may be clothed, and that you may clothe yourself, and your shame of your nakedness may not be seen, and salve to anoint your eyes, that you may see. Those whom I love I reprove, reprove and, and discipline. So be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. 
If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne as I am also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So, verse number 14. Philadelphia, before we get into exactly what it says, I just wanted to give you a background about this city. Philadelphia is loaded, located about 43 miles southeast of Philadelphia. And so this may have been a one or two day journey for the mailman. But this is to the south of Philadelphia. Now, if you recall, Paul, the apostle, had written uh, an epistle to the church of Colossae. Now, Colossae is only 11 miles to the west of Laodicea. And if you recall, if you would read the epistle to the Colossians, he mentions the Laodiceans. He said, if I write this letter to you, take that over to Laodicea and read it there. And he also wrote an epistle to the Laodiceans. Take that letter, read it at Colossae. And so we have uh, firsthand knowledge that the people received some very good tutoring, some very good information. The city was also about six miles south of a town or a city called Heriopolis. Now this is where they received their drinking water. This particular place, Heriopolis, was located near Hot Springs. And uh, the city of Laodicea was destroyed by an earthquake in 17 AD. And so we can see that there's a lot of volcanic activity. There was geothermal water provided to this city and it kind of would bubble up. If you've ever been to a hot spring, you know how that works. And many times people will go to hot springs for health reasons. Uh, my father lived up in West Virginia. There was a place called Berkeley Springs. They had hot springs there. A lot of places around this country will have a place like that. And they'll pipe the hot water in. Usually this water is laden and real heavy with minerals. And sometimes the minerals will, will cause the water not to smell very well. But you can sit in this water. It can be good for you. And it was really, um, shall we say, the city up north was famous for this type of hot springs. Now to the west in Colossae, um, they, they had cold water. And they enjoyed their cold water. But the water that was used in Laodicea was moved to Laodicea by aqueduct from these hot springs. By the time the water arrived, it was lukewarm. Now, up in Ohio, we had water sometimes from our wells. We would live not in the city, but the well water up there. Uh, many, many neighborhoods had sulfur deposits. Now, I don't know if you know where I'm going with this, but if you had a well that's uh, dug through sulfur deposits, that water stank. I mean, there's no other way to say it. You can say that it smelled bad and everything else, but the water would just stink. And people that were not used to that would come into the house and they'd say, what's wrong with this house? And, uh, but we wouldn't be used to it. We would just drink it. Uh, that's just the way things are. And so I'm sure in Laodicea that after a while, when you're born there, you live there, the water's not that bad. But if you went to Laodicea, you'd say, what's wrong with this water? And so we have that type of background. And so when the Lord begins to rebuke them, they already have an idea of how to uh, use that information. So Laodicea was also famous and had a lot of money made from wool. They had a unique type of wool from black sheep and they made very expensive garments that were naturally black wool. They were uh, also famous for a medical college. I'll call it a college very loosely, but it was an institution where they have developed some type of treatments and ointment and salve for eyes, and they were uh, very famous for that. 
that is also going to be translated into uh, the people of the city understanding and hearing that they were naked, they, but they were famous for their black wool, or they were blind, but they were famous for Isaac. And so we can see that even though they drank tepid water and lukewarm water, the Lord is saying, you know, I would spit this out of my mouth if I had it. And I, I know, what, I know what, what that's like. Many times this passage has been preached by preachers and they'll say, um, we should not be lukewarm. We should be on fire and not cold. Well, I don't think this is actually saying these type of things. I think it's more like this. They should have the gospel. They have the gospel that would say, I can give you water that will bring you everlasting life and you'll never thirst again. But instead, people say, what kind of water is this? And that's a statement against them. What kind of gospel is this? That it doesn't bring a smile to our face concerning the sweetness of Christ, but rather they would spit it out. So we'll get there and say and kind of say those things again later. This is a very strong city for Rome. It was uh, very strong in worship of Caesar, but they were very, uh, very rich. This city was destroyed by an earthquake and they actually refused money from Rome because they were so wealthy. And they also donated money to neighboring cities. And so they could actually say, we are rich, we don't need anyone's help. And they were able to build that type of pride within themselves. Now, this, within this population, it's been estimated that were, there were 7,500 Jewish males there. They estimated this by the amount of money they sent to Jerusalem. And so based upon that much money, they estimated there must be 7,500 Jewish males in this city. And so this was not a city that didn't have any Jews. There were there. This is not a city that did not have some type of Roman influence. Roman influence was very strong. They worshiped the Caesar uh, very much there. And so the question is, why in this city did they not get persecuted? Why there? When other cities received persecuted, not only from the Jews, but from the Romans, but they did not. And so there's that question. And so we can see that this city is not like the other cities. It's just they had nothing, shall we say, that the Lord could go there and say, I'm so pleased with you. So let's read this verse and we'll go into what was said. And to the angel of the church in Laodicea write the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness in the beginning of God's creation. And so as in the other letters to the other churches, we can see that Christ is talking to the elders, to the, to the preachers and pastors of this church. But we have to remember that even though it's addressed to the pastors, the Lord knows that the pastors should be faithful to pass that right on to the congregation. It is our job to take the words of God and make them clear to the people. Now, I'm going to make some assumptions here. I'm going to assume that when this letter was given by John to someone to deliver to these churches, they went probably in this order, starting in Ephesus and ending in Laodicea. And it's very possible that they read the entire book aloud to them, starting in verse 1-1 all the way to the end of chapter 22. And so it's very possible that these people read the words, or they heard the words that were addressed to the other churches before them. They heard all the other letters before them. And then they went into the sections of the scriptures that are called apocalyptic. And don't forget about the word apocalyptic. It doesn't mean it's catastrophic. No, it just means visions that need to be interpreted. 
But the letters themselves were written to individual churches and they had individualized introductions, individualized commendations or reproofs, and individualized recommendations. So, when it says, the words of the Amen and the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation, we can see that this is unique. Many of the other letters had their beginnings with a description of Jesus Christ's vision in chapter 1. Remember the vision where he had eyes of flame of fire and his feet were like burnished bronze? And that's how Christ would introduce himself from the vision. But this introduction is not from that vision. This introduction is from the very beginning of the letter where Christ is introduced as someone who is the Amen. And as our brother said before, if you missed a men's meeting concerning the faithfulness of God, it was great. And so I'm going to say some things that I read in that article by Spurgeon because it was very, very good. The idea that Jesus Christ is the Amen is important for us to understand. One thing, we say that in this church, do we not? Somebody will be preaching something or teaching something, and somebody will hear it in their words and in their ears, and they'll say, Amen to that. Or we may pray, and we say at the end, Amen to that. But there is a, a history behind this. The idea that Jesus is calling himself the Amen is more of God the Father saying to Christ, He is the one who is faithful and true. Because the word Amen is the same phrase translated as faithful and true. And so when you say Amen, you're saying, I can concur and I agree that, that, that what is being said is faithful and true. And so it can be used in asserting Okay, it can be used in saying, I agree with something that has been said. Now, it can also be used when you can give consent to something. Like, for example, in the, um, in the Old Testament, when Moses and, and uh, uh, his brother Aaron, they were preparing themselves to go into the wilderness, the law was given to them, and Moses had Aaron sit in a valley between two mountains. One mountain would be Mount Ebal, and the other mountain, Mount Gerizim. Half the tribes were divided on one mountain, the other half on the other. On, on the other. And so the law was then read, and all the curses of the law were read very loudly from the valley. But all the tribes on Mount Ebal, when they heard the cursings, they would shout, Amen! Even so that all the tribes on the other mountain could hear them. And then when the blessings were read, Blessed is he who does this. Blessed is he who does this. And then all the tribes on that mountain would shout, Amen. That Amen would be, I agree and I consent to do this. That is what we should be doing with the Word of God. We hear it, we hear the gospel, and we say, Amen, I consent. The last way of using the word Amen is petitionary. In other words, we would say, we pray to the Lord. Thy will be done. Great is God. And then we give him a partition. And then at the end we would say, Amen. Another way of saying, this is the request of my heart. I want to, I want to say sincerely that this is the, the desire of my heart to be given to God. So, with Christ being the Amen, we must understand that when God the Father says, or Christ says, I am the Father's Amen. He is saying that all of the divine purposes of God have been met in what Christ has accomplished. All of the things that are shown in the Old Testament uh, shadows and types, Christ has met and has the amen to these. 
all of the majestic promises and accusations of the law are met in Jesus Christ. So when we think of the gospel as being God's accomplished promise to give us eternal life, it is God's amen, Jesus Christ himself. He is the amen to that. And it also says that he is the beginning of God's creation. There are some that mistake this in thinking that Christ was created and that God had Christ the very beginning of his creation, but it is not. What this is implying is that Jesus, Jesus is the Alpha. He is the beginning and the end. And it is through Jesus Christ, that is, as John would say, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. All things were made by Jesus Christ. And he is the beginning of this Amen process. And we'd have to say that it was very, very good. Christ is the Amen, the mediator, the advocate. And so we need to proceed from there. Verse 15. <clears throat> I know your works. You are neither hot or cold. Would that you were either hot, or cold, or hot. Now, with this, I would say, I want you to imagine this being read out loud to the congregation. And I don't know if they read the entire book, but I would assume that they would. And I would only guess, and this is, you know, I told you, I promised you I'll guess when I'm guessing, but I'll tell you exactly what the word says when I'm, when I'm sure. I am unsure about this, but I would imagine that the people heard the other letters. And I can only imagine that when they heard, now to the people of Laodicea, and he says this, I know your works. Now you see, Jesus Christ, knowing that they thought they were rich, knowing they thought they were doing good things, they may have thought to themselves, he knows our works, he's just about to brag a little bit about us. He's just about to give us a great commendation. Now I've been in enough of those ceremonies and I've seen enough people receive commendations where they call them up on stage and they all clap and they get their picture taken with the, you know, with the leader and so on. They may have had that in the back of their minds where they're saying they may have nudged each other and said, he knows our works. <clears throat> He's heard of us. Okay. And so the idea here is that they may have anticipated the idea that because they were rich, God was pleased with them because they had prosperity and apparently did not need anything that God had blessed them because of that. That is, these are the proofs that God has, has blessed them. And this is one of the reasons why I want to warn the congregation that there is a gospel today that espouses that type of idea. That because they have been blessed, because they wear good clothes, because they are rich, because they have been blessed by these things, that God approves of them. But that's not always the case, is it? That is no way that a man can be judged. That's not how you should judge yourself. And that is not how God judges you. So, it says that, you, I know your works. And then, after the reproof, they would have to say, God has seen our hearts. He says, you are neither cold or hot. Now, like I said before, I do not believe that this is a, an indication that they are just lukewarm in their love to God. Even though I believe that they were lukewarm in their love to God. I believe that they were apathetic. But that's not the accusation here. You need to be cold and refreshing water 
to those who are thirsty. You need to, or you can be hot and healing water to those who are hurting. But why should you be tepid to those who need the gospel of Jesus Christ? Why should you be apathetic there? Something that, there's something wrong with this water, the way it smells, the way it tests, and the first thing they drink is to spit it out of their mouth. And that many times is the way the gospel is received in this community or in this world. They hear the gospel of some people and they spit it right out of their mouth. Even the world knows it stinks. But I'll tell you what, if you would have the gospel preached from hearts that love Jesus Christ supremely, it cannot be wrong. And I say, well, just, just loving God? The Holy Spirit has made his promises clear. And it, it cannot be misunderstood that Christ has loved and died for sinners, and that he commands all men everywhere to repent, and that the gospel saves sinners. That is the clearest gospel you can get, and you can learn much more about it, but you cannot replace it with God can make you rich, God can make you healthy, God can take away your problems. It cannot, the gospel cannot be substituted with that type of thing that once you get it in your mouth, you just want to spit it out because it detracts and steals the hearts of God's people away from Christ. It replaces it with things that can just be thrown away and tarnished. So, this is what we're looking at. Verse number 16. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. It is a natural reaction to take this type of water and spit it. But he says, I'm about to do this. Now the first thing you may say is that, is this really a church? That the Lord would actually say, I will spit you out of my mouth. But what we have here is a warning of a God, of Jesus Christ, to a church that he loves. He loves this church. He is, has compassion toward this church because he is warning this church. Some people like to think that, oh, he, he had a real, he didn't like this church. No, he did like this church. But he recognized their problems and he told them the truth. Now, there are going to be some people in your life that they're not going to like it when you tell them the truth. They would prefer that you lie to them. They would prefer that you would be nice to them rather than tell them the truth. Christ loves the church of Laodicea much more than to not warn them. The Laodicean church was filled with distasteful characteristics of self-deception and self-righteousness, and yet they were still a church. But there was a grave warning given to them. A grave warning. Christ wanted them to know that he was not pleased with them. Don't turn away the love of someone that corrects you. Please do not do that. Even in your own family, even in your own community, if someone loves you enough to correct you, please listen to them. Listen to them. Why was Christ so displeased with them? It's because they thought they were rich, but they were poor. And they refused to change because they did not know. And so Christ told them. And he says, let's go to verse number 17. You say I am rich, I have prospered, I need nothing. Not realizing that you are wretched and pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. And so Christ when he reproves them, does not beat around the bush, he immediately tells them the problem. You are saying that you are rich, that you have prospered, that you have need of nothing. Let me tell you what the word wretched means. It means that 
it, it's a word that describes someone who is actually worthless, someone who is despicable, someone who is inadequate. You see, they thought that they were completely adequate and up to the job. But Christ is saying, you are not up to this job. You feel as though in your own strength, because of who you are, God has put his seal of approval on you. Now you see, when someone says, Amen, that's a verbal seal of approval. And when Christ is saying, I am the Amen, he wants to put his seal upon them, his approval upon them. But we must be made in the image of Christ to do that. We must, be, we must be honored by God and not by man. And so with this, he says that you are pitiable. You are someone that should be pitied rather than someone who should be admired. But these three, the last three, the idea of being poor, blind, and naked, these are special. These are the ideas that they are poor. And it's not poor in spirit like you hear in the Mount, you know, Sermon on the Mount, like I mentioned before. But it's more like you are poor in the things of God. We need to be rich in the things of God. We need that. We should work toward gaining wealth that can only be given by God. To be godliness with contentment is great gain. Not filling your barns so full that you have to build new ones to hold everything. And so the idea that they need to be told that they are truly poor is because they had, in their own hearts, something had been switched around. The value of who Christ was was switched with the things of the world. They did not see this. They were blind. They did not have spiritual wisdom. They did not see their own pitiable condition. Now, when it comes to being naked, you know, these people were famous for their, their black wool. These people were famous for their eye salve. And these people were famous for their wealth. And so all of these things that they were famous for as a city, they were actually poor and blind and naked. I want you to think about the idea of being poor. If you had been, if you were required to be redeemed, and you know, that word is not always understood. You would pawn something in a pawn shop and he wanted to get it back. You would have to take the money and redeem it back. We have a debt to God that we cannot pay. You see, that's a debt. To have that debt paid by Christ is to be redeemed and bought back. And so if we are poor, that's the idea. We need to realize that we are poor so that we can depend upon Christ to redeem us from our sins. The idea that we cannot even see our own unholiness makes us blind to the fact that we need to have our sanctification uh, renewed, restored. And so being poor, being blind, that is this. You do not value being redeemed. You do not value walking with God anymore. And the last, being naked. You do not value the fact that Christ gave you his own righteousness to wear as a robe, to stand in his presence, that he would be pleased with you, that there would be, uh, now the peace of God has been given to you to be reconciled with him. Can you see now that this redemption and sanctification and justification has been confused in their minds because they have replaced the love of Christ with the love of the world? And now they are confused. They have talked themselves out of the blessings that are true. 
He says in verse number 18, I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire, that you may be rich, and white garments that you may clothe yourself, and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen, and salve to open your to, to, to anoint your eyes that you may see. What can do this? Well, the gospel of Jesus Christ can do it. Understanding that Christ wants them to recover from this type of sin, that he urges them to do it. We need to be rich in the things of God and not the things of this world. We need to value what can redeem us from sin. The riches of Jesus Christ. And what is that? His righteousness that he provided to the sinner that puts us back into the possession of God. He possesses us because he bought us. The devil is going to say this, I will try them as all with everything I possibly can, but God will turn those curses into blessings, and the trials of the devil will become the fire that purifies the gold. We will be purified. He says, buy from me the gold that, that will purify you. Now, it is bought without money, is it not? This is a quote from Isaiah, of course. God wants us to learn that God is the one who is good. And how beautiful God is, we can only see with eyes that want to know the holy God. You will not find a God that only blesses you when you need blessings. You will find God when you hunger and thirst after righteousness and after God and Christ himself. Then will you see what is valuable. Then will you sell all to buy that one field that has the precious pearl in it. Only then will you become the one that will understand, now I see. Now I see that I can only please God with the righteousness given to me. Now I can be rich in the things of God by living with a God who is holy. Now I can have all the things uh, that Christ has for me. This is an encouragement to this church to repent and to be zealous of their repentance. God is saying this to them. In order for us to truly repent, we must humble ourselves. Remember the lesson today during the study hour? What did God require of man? You know, humble. Humble yourself before God. God will give grace to the humble, but he will resist the proud. And when it comes to the humble heart that is willing to hear the reproof, God will give even more. Remember what Christ has said, he who has will be given even more. I can remember some people saying, that doesn't sound quite fair. If he has, he's given more, but those that don't have, they even don't have what they think they have. But that doesn't seem quite right. Well, listen. The humble will be given even more humility. But those who live in their pride against God, they will have taken away what they think they have. It's because of their pride. God resists the proud. God is the one who comes and says, humble yourself. Listen to the reproof. Ask God for wisdom. He will give you riches to have your soul redeemed. He will give you sight that you might know the holy God and be in fellowship with him. And he will give you clothing that you might be justified in the sight of God, wearing the imputed righteousness of Christ. And so this is what he says. The same thing that he said to Philadelphia. He said to Philadelphia, own my word and own my name. You see, it is the word of God that tells us about our redemption, about the sanctification, about the justification that we need. Own the gospel. Own the God of the gospel. Do not be ashamed of his name and own him in front of, your, in front of this world. Verse number 19. 
Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. Be zealous, therefore, and repent. And like I said before, it is self-explanatory. There's no words needs to be said about what these words mean. Whom he loves, he disciplines. If he did not love them, he would have said nothing to them. But he does love them. He does love them. How quickly will the humble receive this rebuke? But how grudgingly will the prideful chafe at it and resist a rebuke? Let us now in this church learn what was said to the Laodiceans. Now, I know that you may be saying, well, are we that church? Well, I, I'd have to only say it like this. I would hope that we are the church of Philadelphia. I would hope that. But even if we were, are there not some members or families or loved ones who are Laodiceans? Are we not some of us from Sardis? Are not some of us from Ephesus? We need to listen to all what the church, what the Spirit says to the churches. And if we have any who are in this condition, oh, humble yourselves before God. Listen to what the Spirit says. We need to see what God is saying to the churches. Verse number 20 is important. Behold, I stand at the door and knock, and if any hears my voice and opens the door, I will come to him, and I will eat with him, and he with me. Remember last week we talked about the key of David? Did he not just say that the key of David is delivered to Christ, and that he opens doors that cannot be shut, and he shuts doors that cannot be opened? But here, he stands at the door and he knocks. That's different, isn't it? When he wants to save someone, he doesn't just say, oh, I hope so. Oh, I want to. No, he gives life to those who he loves. He gives it. He opens doors. He opens the hearts of people. The gospel saves them. But when he loves someone who has let the world steal his love, he loves the world more than him. He comes and knocks on that door, the door of obedience to the Christian, the door of obedience to the church. He knocks on your door and our door. Will you please humble yourselves before me and I will come into you and I will have that sweet fellowship once again. You see, it is the difference. God comes and deals with his children like a father does. He humbles himself even. It is the door of obedience and he calls us to repentance. Verse number 21, he who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne and also as I also conquered and sat with my father on, him, on his throne. There are those today who would look at this verse and say, well, this is sometime way in the future, way in the future when we get to sit on thrones. Well, I'll say this. Let me read what the scripture says to you. Chapter one, verse four. John, to the seven churches who are in Asia, grace to you, peace from him who is and who was and who is to come, from the seven spirits which are before the throne, from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness, and the first begotten from the dead, and the prince of the kings of the earth, unto him that loved us and washed us from our sins, and hath made us kings and priests. He has made us kings and priests. Now, if that sounds like, well, that's, a, that's in a book of the apocalypse, it must be interpreted. No, it's pretty clear right there. He, did, he has not even in the apocalyptic part yet. He's just introducing himself. I want to remind you of what Paul said to the Ephesians. He said this, But God, being rich in mercy, because of his great love, wherewith he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses and sins, has made us alive together with Christ, by grace you are saved, and raised us up with him, 
and seated us with him in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Now we are seated with Christ and he is in session. Remember what was said in the, in the morning uh, 10 o'clock service? He's in session. He is the king. He is judging and we are seated with him. Now when you say, is this right now? Well, what do you think we're doing? We're condemning the world of sin. We're preaching the gospel to those who need to be saved. This kingdom is not of this world. Remember what Christ said to Pilate. Are you a king? Is there a kingdom here that I'm supposed to be afraid of? Do I have to do something to you? Because are you going to have a revolution here? He says, who asked you this? Did, did, did the Pharisees ask you to ask me that? And he says, am I a Jew? And he says, he says, well, are you a king? And he says, if my kingdom was of this world, then would my servants fight? So do you see that there is a kingdom? The kingdom of God is at hand. It is at hand. And the kingdom of God is within you. There is a kingdom, and this is the embassy of it. We represent Christ. And the kingdom is within us. And it is here. And we reign with Christ. Amen. Believe it by faith. Because it is told to us. Promised to us by God. And we hold it by faith. Revelation 22. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. If we've got ears, we need to hear this. If there is a lesson to be learned, we need to pay attention. And, 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 and the lesson is this. If the shoe fits, you wear it. I have one practical application before we end. And the application is this. Do not let the world lure you and to tempt you into changing the gospel. Because the world will do that. The world will influence a church and say, you know, you want to get along, don't you? You don't want to be hated by anyone. Well, that's a problem. We have a problem in this age, in this country especially, with a false gospel, with several types of false gospels. And the Apostle Paul would say, you know, I'm afraid, you know, remember the Galatians? I'm afraid that you have been lured away by another gospel. And he says this, which is not another gospel. It's just not a gospel. And that's what's happening today. The Laodiceans thought that God was pleased with them because they were rich. And yet even today, we have a brand of the gospel that says God makes his people rich when he loves them. That's not a good idea to preach. This passage refers to Isaiah, oh no, Hosea chapter 12, where Christ said, you are not rich, you are poor. Those that think they are rich, now let me read to you. Hosea chapter 12 verse 8 says this, Ephraim has said, ah, but I'm rich. I have found wealth for myself. In all my labors, they cannot find in me iniquity or sin. Do you see how that was equated? How Ephraim said to himself, I am rich. Who can find iniquity? Since I am rich, God is pleased. Who can find sin in me? Well, if you read that whole chapter, chapter 12 in Hosea, you'll find out that it begins something like this. God has said, Ephraim is feeding on the wind. That's an interesting way of saying it, isn't it? He says that he is pursuing the east wind all day long. Have we not read where you, if you sow to the wind, you will weep the whirlwind? Have not you seen how the enemies to the north, Assyria, and the enemies to the south, Egyptians, that you are not to make a covenant with them because you covet their precious things? 
and yet they have. And because they've become rich, they said, I am rich. God is pleased with me. We should learn that lesson, the same lesson that's being taught to the people in Laodicea. You have done the same thing that Ephraim did. You think you're rich. What we need to do today when we hear the gospel is listen to, is there repentance from sin? Is there faith in Jesus Christ? Is the atoning work of Christ is what's going to save the sinner? We need to be saved from the idea that our endeavors and our works is what atones for us. That's the gospel of works. We should resist the idea that our prosperity is something that is a fruit of the Spirit. God comes and says, I will give you of my Spirit. And what is it? Worldly riches? No. Only the riches that come from Christ. Only the fruits of the Spirit. The fruits of godliness, humility, joy, peace. These things. These are the fruits of the Spirit. These are the riches that we are going to gain and carry into the new world. The water that came to the Laodicean church was neither hot or cold. It's something you just wanted to spit out of your mouth. And I say this. What type of gospel do we preach? The kind of gospel that should be spit out of the mouth? No. Let it be refreshing to the thirsty. Let it be healing to those who are sick. Let it be true to the gospel of Jesus Christ. We, if we do this and Christ rebukes us for our sins, we must be ready in a humble spirit. And if we are then we will repent quickly and with zeal. Because that's what Christ said. Be zealous. Be zealous. So examine your own heart. The scripture says, and Christ said on the Sermon on the Mount, Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. All these things will be added to you. And so we don't have to worry about whether we are in this world rich. If you do these things, you will repent easily and you will do it with zeal. But I want to remind you that we must love Christ first or we will be tempted to change the gospel because we will, we will love what we value. If we do not value Christ, we've replaced him with something else. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Our Holy Father, we now ask that we receive that you would enable us, Holy Spirit, enable us to receive rebukes, rebukes and reproofs humbly. Allow us, Lord, to live our lives openly before you. We want to see your holiness. And so, Father, clothe us with your righteousness. Enable us to hide in Christ that we might with courage stand before you, that we might learn what is good and what is right, and that we might walk with a friend that we might be your friend, that we might learn to walk this way before the world, that we would own your word and that we would own your name. Because our Christ came and he was not afraid to own us. He was not, he was not slow to do for us. And so, Father, please, may your Holy Spirit, and Holy Spirit, we ask you, impress upon us the image of Christ. Enable us to be like him. We pray these things in the Lord's name. Amen.